Shalom, holy friends. Great to see you. Thank you for being here. We have others who will be trickling in for sure. And we know this is also live stream to many people who are watching or listening on the Facebook live. And um, we have a very, very rich topic today from a wonderful uh, scholar and mentor of mine. Rabbi Dina Naiman is the Mara Atra and senior rabbi of the Kehillah in Riverdale. An amazing shul. If you've never been there, you should at least check it out. Hopefully you've even become a member. Uh, from 2006 to 2013, Rabbi Naiman was the Mara Atra at the Kehillah Orach Eliezer in Manhattan first Orthodox synagogue to appoint a woman as senior rabbi of a shul. She's the head of the Gemara department at SAR Academy in Riverdale, New York. Love SAR. Um, rabbi Nyman has extensive experience teaching and speaking in the Jewish community on topics ranging from bioethics to environmental law. Rabbi Nyman has served on the board of the Halakhic Organ Donor Society, HODES, for more than a decade and presently serves on the YCT and Jofa advisory boards as well. She presently serves on the board of Uri Metzedek, yes, and on the advisory board of Yeshivat Kovavei Torah. Rabbi Naiman studied as a Drisha fellow and then went on to study at Nishmat, where uh, she learned in the Machon Gavoa Nida learning program. She received, received her smicha from Rabbi Professor Daniel Sperber. Um, Rabbi Naiman earned her certificate certification in bioethics and medical humanities from NYU Einstein Bioethics and Medical Humanities Certificate Program. She compiled Jewish legal source material for Hodes and has developed and taught halakhic curricula for the Drisha Institute, as well as Maya Notes and SAR Yeshivot. Rabbi Naiman is a senior rabbinic fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. And friends, that only scratches the surface. We are dealing here with just an amazing Torah scholar, a creative mind, a compassionate spirit, um, and someone who is thinking forward and back, and back, rooted in the Makorot, and also very much pushing us to think forward with conscience and a deep moral consciousness, and um, to bring us together to to bring repair to our society. Dear, dear teacher of mine. So it's my honor to welcome Rabbi Dina Naiman. Thank you for that, Rav Shirley. Um, and permit me to return <laughs> a little bit. Um, I, I, I just want to begin with our short time together this afternoon. I'm expressing Maya Karasatov to Rav Shmuley um, for his vision, for his courage to spearhead Uri Litzedek, the consideration for the vulnerable and the marginalized, and see ourselves as actively responsible. And that's something that Uri Litzedek has raised our consciousness towards. Also, um, the goal here is to combat suffering and oppression of all of God's creations that's something that Uri Litzedek is deeply committed to, and I am so honored to be a part of it. With Rav Shmuley as our humble yet strong leader, Uri Litzedek provides a voice and space for many Orthodox leaders committed to the preservation of halacha and kavod habriot, to really giving dignity to all. And I wanted to begin by offering my thanks to you, Rav Shmuley, and all those who participate in this critical organization. I see Eddie on this list. I see Emma. I want to thank Jessica Morris um, for all of our organization for this event and all those who work so hard uh, to create this virtual learning space. And of course, those who serve on the board with me at Ori Litzedek, constantly thinking um, how to help Rav Shmuley spread this critical message. So today, I was asked to speak about a topic that for a number of years has seemed to be the rage. Cultured meat, 
lab-grown meat, clean meat. Hopefully you received um, the, um, the, uh, the sources. The sources are not complete, I want to say, um, but what they are, I just want to make sure that I can, if I share my screen with you, I just want to make sure to give you what I'm going to be showing you today. Can everyone see the screen? Okay. Thumbs up if you can see the screen. I mean, this is Zoom, so sometimes it gets a little complicated here, of course. Um, so I have a few things to help us with this topic today. Um, one thing is this idea of what is cultured meat. Um, and also, it has a lot of names. Um, one of its names is in vitro meat, vat-grown meat, lab-grown meat, cell-based meat, and I said before, clean meat, synthetic meat. What does this all mean? So in order for us to really get a good sense of what is lab-grown meat, um, we need to talk a little bit about history. We're going to have to do a little bit of biology. And we're going to also have the opportunity to talk about some of the ethical and halachic Jewish legal issues that surround this topic. So let's begin. Okay. So the fact is, as I said, it has many different names. And we might think that this is something that's all the rage. But the truth is, this is actually something that's been talked about since 1931. And Winston Churchill published an essay around 50 years ago where he predicted that the world might look a little different in 19, the 1980s. One of his predictions was that human beings would figure out how to permanently divorce meat production from the animal itself. And this is what he said. He said, we shall escape the absurdity of growing a whole chicken in order to eat the breast or wing by growing these parts separately under a suitable medium. And again, I apologize that I'm going to be showing you some slides while I'm talking, um, but I really want you to see some of these texts, which are actually kind of interesting. And in addition to what Churchill wrote here, he said that what the advantage would be would be that we would free up land that had been used for growing crops to feed farm animals. And he saw that parks and gardens will cover our pastures and plowed fields, in his words. And this was a dream. And this dream has now moved to the reality with the first clean burger. Clean burger, which debuted in 2013, when the Dutch scientist Mark Post, sorry, just trying to move this, Mark Post presented to the world the first lab-grown burger. And then what happened was things started to grow forth, like Tyson and Cargill invested in something called Memphis Meats. And we had a big manufacturing companies that started actually growing. Guess which country did a lot of this? Israel. Israel was very interested in working with China, actually, and they began the processing process of lab-grown meats for consumption of their citizens. And a lot of startups began. We have all these different kinds of uh, companies, if you hear about them. They have Memphis Meats, Future Meat Technology, Olive Farms. Can you guess where that one is? Obviously, Israel. Super Meat, Biofood Systems. And all this is really where the laboratory production 
of animal, actual animal muscle tissue is produced in a lab without the living conscience animal. So how does this work? The first thing I would say is, what is this meat? So it's meat, which is grown in a laboratory from animal cells. So let's talk about the benefits first. Why would I, instead of having a nice juicy steak, why would I prefer to have um, a lab-grown um, meat? So we can look at a few reasons. One, one reason, and before we even get to that actually, is that raising farm animals, it takes a great deal of, of resources. I mean, you're sitting in an Uri-Litsetic setting and you can appreciate um, what it means um, to be in a situation where animals are often used and manufactured and, and a, lot of the, a lot of the environments for these animals is not the best for them. Questions of what we would call how animals are treated. And here we see that in 2011, Oxford University, there was a researcher who estimated that these were the statistics that have changed. And I, I think that this is very important for you to see. Clean beef production could require 99% less land. Raising livestock and growing crops to feed them uses large amounts of land leading to mass deforestation. And we know what the results of deforestation are on the environment. We have suffered great loss of biodiversity. And each day we lose upwards of 80,000 acres of tropical rainforest. With that around 50,000 species become extinct each year. 96% less water would be used, producing 96% fewer greenhouse, ga greenhouse gas emissions than regular beef production. So already we see that our world would benefit greatly from not having so much meat produced. Now, what are the ethics involved? So here, let's talk about how meat production has become unsustainable, inhumane, and many times, given what these animals are given, um, it becomes unhealthy. Most animals raised for slaughter never set foot outside. They're forced to consume large quantities of antibiotics and other drugs. And if we think about the ethics, how much can we really feed people with a limited amount of animal production? But when we're talking about cells that can grow and produce more meat, poverty and starvation in our world could really be assisted um, or could be um, improved. We can, we can feed more people. The type of production can yield far more opportunities to provide nutritious food, when I mean iron-enriched food, to third world countries and communities struggling to feed their people. And we know that meat demand grows fast. We know that people want meat. That's something that a lot of people talk about. We want meat. Um, and so the estimation, if we would just stay the way we are now without any kind of assistance, by 2050, the estimation is that the world population will surpass 9 billion people. And according to the UN, meat demand is expected to be 70% higher than today. We don't have enough land or water to increase meat production by 70%. So either we make the decision 
to reduce meat consumption, people who are really role models to me who've gone vegan or vegetarian, um, not yet in my household, but it's actually something that in another lecture we can talk about, but we can reduce meat consumption or we can find a more efficient way to produce it. And with cultured meat production, there's no requirement to have pesticides or chemicals. It takes place in a closed system to allow us to grow in a natural environment. And this would limit the slaughter of animals. And by the way, when we're talking about slaughtering of animals, I'm not only talking about the health concerns for the people consuming animals. We need to put in this narrative when we're talking about it, how animals are treated. People who have nefesh, uh, people, animals that have nefesh chaya. And how we need when Hashem gave us the 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 directive to safeguard God's world. How are we treating these animals? And remember, animal agriculture produces 15% of greenhouse gas emissions. When people talk about gas emissions in this world, you need to understand, we need to understand. I remember my child coming home from school a number of years ago, telling us one of the main pollutants is what happens when, um, when, a, when a cow emits you know, guttural gas emissions through their mouths. So that's that's really a concern. Cultured meat generates up to 96% lower greenhouse gas emissions, helping us avoid the disastrous consequences of climate change, which we know all you have to do is be here sitting with me in New York right now and seeing that last week we were in the 70s and right now I'm sitting in the 40s, right? So the world, no one can escape what's really going on here. Okay, so now let's talk a little bit of biology. How is this meat produced? How is it grown? So I'm gonna give you a little bit of a bio lesson. You happen to have a few diagrams in your handouts. And I wanna just go through what exactly happens throughout this process. So animal cells are harvested from a living or newly shechted animal, okay? Tissues are cut into minuscule pieces to separate the fibers. And then the muscle cells or the fat cells are contained and they're dissected and put and cultured into a lab. Then the cells start dividing. And boy, do they divide. They divide so much that one trillion cells can be grown from one cell. And these cells grow and they merge into form microtubules. Let's look a little bit of what I mean. So again, a tissue is taken, they're extracted, they're grown, they're kind of poofed up, and they form these myotubes. Myotubes uh, have like this little ring around this central hub of gel. If you could see it here, maybe this is a little bit of a better picture for you. And the muscles have a tendency, like muscles do, to contract which cause them to actually put on bulk. Think about when you work out your muscle, right? And it causes bulk. So here too, they're actually worked in the lab gel and they bulk into a small piece of muscle tissue. And then again, as I said, from one piece, you can produce like 1 trillion muscle strands. And when these little pieces of muscle are layered together, we get a piece of meat. So take a look here. This is just kind of replacing what we did before. Here are the cells. They're multiplied. So this would be a cell growing live in a cow. That's what you would get. But cells multiplied in lab, they fuse. 
And yes, they have a little bit of electron electrical stimulation in the lab. And then, because it's kind of think about what like kind of causes muscles to uh to contract and grow, right? So this is the muscle being used. And then look what happens. And then they kind of grow and they bulk and they fuse. And that is what can produce lab-grown meat. And I gave you just a little bit of information here of the expense of growing lab-grown meat. You can look at some of these statistics here that I have on the board, but something that's interesting that you might want to know is that initially in the lab, this talk took a lot of money. Because you might say, this is hugely expensive. And you're right. When they started producing this, you should know that the patty in 2013 cost more than $300,000 to produce. And by the way, it was pretty dry, just saying. But the meat, actually, the more they were working through it, then it started costing about $600 per patty. And now they say, now that they're getting more used to it, um, and they're figuring out how to do this and mainstream it a little bit easier, they are seeing that the costs are going down and down. The other things that we're going to have to think about also, even if this doesn't have the pesticides, and even if you're, it's not directly from the animal, um, even lab-produced meat will need to meet with FDA approval, the Food Drug Administration approval, of course. And the other thing to consider is, you know, how do I make it tasty? <laughs> you know, we need it to be an incentive for people to eat it. A lot of people might not want to eat it. So if this is something that we see ethically and morally, we really want to do not only for ourselves, maybe health-wise, but also for the environment. So we got to make it a little tasty. So that's something that we need to work on a little bit more, but they're doing much better getting it. And then when they do, the, the goal is hamburgers, chicken nuggets, steak, duck, whatever you like, this is what is being worked on right now. So I gave you a little bit of bio, but I need to explain to you because this is going to, ex this is going to really um, go over into the halachic issue, is what are these cells that are being reproduced in the animal? What type of cells are coming from the muscle cell? So maybe many of you have heard about stem cells. Certainly you've heard about that probably when it comes to organ donation and people are growing stem cells. But there's something very important to know about stem cells. And before we can talk about it in terms of the lab-grown meat, I really want to talk to you about what they are. Stem cells, um, you know, they are themselves, they divide into cells similar to themselves. They have this remarkable ability to divide and differentiate into any of the body's 200 cell types. And you probably know, because if you've heard about neurology stem cells, or if you've heard of anyone years ago, Christopher Reeve actually donated to Israel. Israel is doing a great job in stem cell research. And here too, it was actually halted because stem cells, as we'll see, will have to come from embryonic stem cells, a lot of the research. And a lot of those labs were actually stopped for eight years during the Bush administration and then regained a lot of energy during the Obama administration. But what we see is that it can really serve as a repair system for the body um, and really replenish other cells um, in a person. When a stem cell divides, it has a choice. It can either remain a stem cell 
or it can choose to be a more specialized function. It can become a muscle cell. It can become a red blood cell, a brain cell. It can become a kidney cell. And when we're talking about organ donation, by the way, this could be really critical. Think about this in a few years. People are actually talking about us taking our own cells and maybe being able to save those stem cells and actually maybe grow our own kidney. Maybe, grow, if God forbid, someone needs a kidney transplant or they need a lung transplant. Think about what the world of stem cells could do. So this is what has been worked on and it can be extraordinary. But stem cells contribute to the body's ability to renew and repair its tissues. And when we're talking about it in terms of meat development, right, we're looking at probably more than anything, you could talk about fat cells for flavor, but we're really mostly talking about muscle cells. And when these cells could differentiate into other muscle cells, animal muscle cells, then they come into being. And what do they look like? So this is another diagram. This is a major bio lesson for you today, but it's necessary. So when a, a cell is first fused and then it goes through different stages of development, the blastocyst stage is a very early development. And I want you to remember that because this is going to be one of the times when it really is extracted here or here. These are when the cells can be anything they want to be. Anything. They can be ectoderm, endoderm, mesoderm, anything they want to be. They can be muscle. They can be bone right? They just have to differentiate. They're not doing that yet. But then what happens is they start differentiating and then they decide, what do I want to be when I grow up, right? Do I want to be a blood cell? Do I want to be a white blood cell? Do I want to be a platelet cell? Do I want to be a muscle cell? So these are things, sorry about that. I'm just moving too fast. Um, sorry. So these are, this is really what a stem cell does. But there are different kinds of stem cell. And I want to make this very clear. At what stage in a stem cell development do I want to take it if I'm going to develop this meat production, right? So stem cells can be totipotent, which are really fusion of an egg and a sperm cell. That's when it can be anything, anything in the world, right? Anything it wants to be in the body of the 200 cells. Then it becomes at a different stage it's really the second generation of cells in one's body when they grow and develop. It's called pluripotent cells. Pluripotent cells really also are undifferentiated, but they're just not totipotent cells. The thing about stem cells is it doesn't go backwards. It only goes forwards. After pluripotent, more differentiated will give you multipotent cells. And those are cells that are closely related to cells like blood cells, like if I want a red blood cell, I have a multipotent blood cell and it will develop into maybe a red blood cell. If it's not so differentiated, it could also become a white cell or a platelet cell. And then you have unipotent cells, which is only one cell, cell type. And they um, do not have the property of self-renewal. And often it really is stuck in what they are. So for the most part, when we're talking about the meat stem cells, we're talking about pluripotent and multipotent. I want you to remember that when we're going to talk about, which we will do shortly, if pig, if it's only like a cell, if potentially pig grown in a lab can be kosher. So just keep that in mind. We have different kinds of stem cells. One is embryonic stem cell. They're completely undifferentiated. Then you have, I'm sorry, I just want to double check. Then we also have 
Um, and, and they're taken, they can become anything you want. Here's an embryonic stem cell. They can do anything they want. But then you have adult stem cells. These are undifferentiated cells. And when they're, they're found around older or younger adults. Now, when I say older adults, I'm also talking about an embryo. An embryo has an ad adult stem cells, meaning they have stem cells that have chosen to become bone. Or stem cells, like anyone ever hear of saving um, in the umbilical cord, you save some of the blood from an umbilical cord. That is already adult differentiated stem cells. They're stem cells because they can produce more and more and more and more of that blood and go farther, but it's limited. Adult stem cells are limited. So that's something that I think that is important. I'm just going to jump a little farther. I know some of you have in your um, source material, maybe a little bit more, but I just want to kind of get to the question that we initially wanted. With all that information, with all that biology, you're ready to take your MCATs or your bio exam. I know you are. But with that, now I want to talk about, is this meat kosher? Is it parv? Meaning, is it not milk or meat? Is it not kosher at all? So one opinion is that not only is the meat kosher and parv, even non-kosher meat, like pig, is allowed to be eaten if grown in a lab. How do we get to such a concept? That means that there's an opinion out there, a luckic opinion out there, that I can take this stem cell from a pig, a, an adult stem cell from a pig, and I can actually grow it in a lab, and I could eat it. Under what premise do we say that? So I think it's source one in your booklet that you have, and I'm not going to go into the text itself, but please just follow with me. There's a Gemara in Yevamot, in Tractate Yevamot. Oh, okay, so maybe I'll talk about this. Uh, it's kind of giving it away. First, I want to show you the, the text. Oh, maybe you don't have it here. You don't have it here, but it is in your... Um, it is in your um, handout that I gave you. And that opinion comes from the Talmud in Yevamot, Samach Tet Amud Bet, which is 69b, which was a discussion where Rav Chisna himself says, it's a question of whether a woman whose husband had died, who was a Kohen, can actually immerse in the, in the mikvah and partake of something called truma, what they would eat with the given in being in the Kohen's family. And we would say that she could still eat truma in the first month of, because we assume that even if she was pregnant with someone else's child, or even if something else happened in her life, for 40 days, she is not considered to have really anything in utero. And that is the statement of Maya Baal Mahi, the idea that. It's merely water. Anything that's within 40 days that's nondescript is merely water. And also another way for you to see this, and the Orach HaShulchan, which is a wonderful, more modern day in the 1900s text, made a point of saying that anything that the eye cannot see is not forbidden ever. And therefore, because he said the Torah wasn't given to angels, his word exactly are, if you can't see it, look, my eyes, you know, nowadays, I think I need to use the progressive lenses, right? But 
even when my eyes were completely without the progressive lenses, he would say, if I can't see it, it's not something forbidden. And that actually factors in when people care about bugs and lettuce. And there's a big discussion about that. The Orach HaShochem would say, based on this Gemara, Maya Ba'al Mahi, anything that's so microscopic, we are going to say that it doesn't have any kind of mashmah, which means it doesn't have anything. So with that in mind, this is what we say. We say, since the pig, and when we're thinking about a pig, since the pig or any stem cell meat is microscopic, the Torah has not forbidden anything that is invisible to the naked eye, based on what we just said. When it grows, it becomes so far removed from the original form, it is something new. Therefore, the cell is permissible to eat, and anything that grows from this cell is therefore permissible. So you are going to see some post schemes, some halachic decisors out there who will say, when lab-grown meat really does become something real, you will have some major, amazing um, leaders um, like Rav Shulo and others who say, it's nothing. And therefore, if it grows from it, it's permissible. I'm sure people might have questions on that. So I can't wait to hear what you're going to say about that. Rav Shlomo Aviner argues that the essential issue is, and this is an important piece, whether we should rule according to the process or according to the result. Quite convincingly, and these are my words here, <laughs> he claims that we should just look at the process. After all, that's what the whole concept of kosher is about. And therefore conclude that lab-grown meat is clearly parved. He calls it neutral. It's neutral. And that's why we should be able to eat it. However, like a good halachic discussion, we have those who will claim that, um, like Rabbi Bleich and Rabbi Yaakov Ariel, who say that since, and this is, I think, an important thing, that since we manipulate this item to grow into something visible, it's not something we discount. Now, this is critical. This is no different from what Rav Shlomo Zalman Orbach related when we were talking about grafting cells from different vegetation, which sometimes we would have kalayim. And he said, it's a forbidden mixture of different species. He said, we can't do that because it's something that we can't discount. When we say maya ba'almahi, that it's merely water, it means that it's really something that's not substantial. Since people are interacting with the particles when we do the stem cell growing of meat, it's not considered halachically irrelevant. So meat growth is manipulated and it's used for meat growth. Therefore, according to those two opinions, meat does not become insubstantial. The meat cell, the animal cell is not insubstantial. And as a result, what would we say then about the pig. And, and the truth is they don't talk about it in stem cells. This is Dina Nyman talking, but I think I need to say this. There are adult differentiated stem cells. And what's unique about them is that an adult stem cell is a little bit differentiated. And because it's differentiated, I believe these animal muscle cells are programmed to behave and respond just as it would within an animal's body. And therefore it doesn't lose its identity. And so what would be the ramifications here? The ramifications of this issue of the microscopic size of an animal cell is that kosher animals would be permitted. 
right? If you have a kosher animal selling you're growing it, that's not a problem. But I would argue, and I, with all due respect to Gedola Yisrael, who are greater than I am, but because of the stem cell piece, which I spent a lot of time talking to you about, pig or any other non-kosher animal in what I see um, would not be permitted. There are some related opinions, Rev Reisman, and he said that this type of meat cellular growth is similar to a process of producing gelatin. Now, this is an important piece too. When gelatin is produced, I don't know if people are familiar with the, pro the production of gelatin. It used to be that they would take non-kosher skin and bones, which were inedible. You couldn't eat it. And to some post scheme, they're not prohibited from consum consumption. It was interesting in Israel, there was a difference of opinion about whether or not you can use um, skins and bones from non-kosher animals. And because it's inedible, maybe that could be useful. But Rav Reisman considers that the pig cell is not edible. And therefore, according to Rav Reisman, he actually says it loses its prohibition status. But this is not because of the Maya Ba'almahi. He's saying because it's inedible. And something that becomes inedible, that's another interesting opinion, should be permissible to use. In opposition to Rav Reisman, again, we have one idea and then an opposition, Rav Ariel maintains that these two cases are different. With gelatin, the skin and bones are always considered inedible. The pig cell, however, is inedible because of its small size. But in truth, it was always edible through the process. So when we spoke about Rav Avinar, when he said it's the process or the result, the pig cell is inedible only because of its small size, but it will remain edible throughout the process. So he would say, even those who permit gelatin would not permit lab-grown meat. Certainly with pig. That's his opinion. The next opinion. This is an interesting debate, and I find this probably one of the most fascinating, um, which is the concept of davar hama'amid. Davar hama'amid is a general rule where an item is diluted in a mixture in which it's simply a minority or less than 1 60th, depending on the circumstance. So if we take an animal cell and we put it in a medium, doesn't it get diluted? Doesn't it become just mixed up in the idol? So when a pig cell is added to a growth medium, the cell is diluted in much more than one sixty. Surely we know that halachic idea. Like let's say I'm having chicken soup and a little bit of milk falls in this and it's a huge pot of chicken soup. What would I say? I would say I can eat it because that amount of milk in there, it's less than one sixtieth it becomes diluted in the chicken soup. I mean, we wouldn't do it initially. It wouldn't be what we would call a lachatrila. It would be something that would happen after the fact, bidyevet. But could it be permitted? Rav Bleich, among others, argue that the pig cell is considered a davar hama'amid, a substance that supports or upholds a mixture. A davar hama'amid is not diluted in any amount. The original pig stem cell serves to support the meat that grows. So it is the catalyst for the entire process, right? It's necessary. I can't grow meat without that original cell. And so therefore, it doesn't become insignificant. And the pig cell is not diluted and nullified, but it remains with the original prohibition. It doesn't, Davar Hamamid, 
does not apply with stems. It should apply in theory with stem cells, some say. Rav Ariel adds that there's no actual mixture and the pig cell is placed in a growth medium and then grows. The result is many more pig cells that grow from the original stem cell. Rather than a mixture, this is just one substance growing substantially. The lab-grown meat consists of original stem cells multiplied greatly, containing the forbidden status of the original cell. So please understand, with this idea of davar hama'amid, in theory, we would say it's nothing, it gets diluted. It doesn't, though, because its status itself has something that gives substance to the mixture, and not even a mixture, but the medium that you're growing. It can't be something that becomes insignificant. And with you, I think I gave you this um, Shulchan Arach, which talks about what happens also if you have the taste of something. Um, the Shulchan Arach talks about if you have curdled cheese in the skin of a kosher stomach and you still have the taste of the meat in it. Um, is it forbidden? Um, if, if you have the taste, yes, but if you don't have the taste, it's permitted. But what happens if it was something that wasn't a kosher animal or an invalid animal? So the Shulchan Aruch says, even if it doesn't have the flavor, it will always be something that is not permitted. And in keeping with those laws of kashrut, that is again why um, the, the pig could be something that's a concern. So I'm going to just go on a little bit. Um, I'm going to leave the Devarhama Amid. It's interesting when you look at cheese making in England versus um, America or Europe, um, the way in which they actually curdle the cheese could actually um, have a very interesting effect. Um, but maybe I will send you my slides so you could see some of that interesting information. But for time purposes, I'm just going to move for a little bit. Um, yeah, there are other concerns. There's a concept of soaking in blood. I'm sorry for people who are vegetarian. I see a few of you on here. I know it grosses you out a little bit, but I'm doing it anyway. <laughs> soaking cells in an animal blood bath to infuse it with nutrients. Is that okay? So the Shulchan Aruch tells us, and this is something called kavush kamavushal. Kavush kamavushal is something, let's say, normally we say, if I'm cooking something in the heat, that's what makes something not kosher. But let's say I have something cold and it's soaking in something that's not permissible. Oh, that's okay. You take it out, you rinse it off. Okay. But a forbidden item that was soaked with a cold permissible item for 24 hours, as in pickling, says the Shulchan Aruch, it is ki'ilu, as if kimavushal, it has been cooked, and it's forbidden in its entirety. If it was less than 24 hours, rinsing it enough, then you can eat it. But let's think about this. We're taking a forbidden item, and we're putting it in a bloodbath, right? Because that gives its nutrients, a serum, so to speak, to allow it to grow. And that's partially what we do with meat processing, right? You put it in a certain animal serum. So, and obviously it's more than 24 hours. It takes a pro it's a process, it's a long process. So is that allowed? So let's talk about this a little bit because this is a little tricky. Keeping, keeping animal cells alive in a dish 
And the magic ingredient has long been fetal, fetal bovine serum. I want you to know that's what they use as a serum to help grow the, the cells. It's derived from the blood of unborn calves. Now you can tell me, but that's kosher. I could use kosher calves, but they're unborn calves. And it's rich in the proteins and nutrients that animal cells use. So that's what happens. They use this from industrial farming. And when the serum comes from the fetuses found inside the cows being slaughtered, you use this, right? But lab-grown meat, if we want it to be kosher, can't rely on byproducts of industrial farming if it's going to replace industrial farming, right? Because the serum probably you're taking, you're not shechting an unborn, um, an unborn bovine, right? So that presents a problem for some of the lab-grown meat. This is another issue that comes up. But the good news is that now, because people also don't want to use those bovine fetus serums, what they do is they started making animal-free serum substitutes with the nutrients. So the question is, can we use that for kashrut standards and the animals? Yes. Obviously, you have to look at what the combination of plants or bacteria or yeast is, but it will enable for an animal-free substitute to grow the meat. So if you have a kosher cell that you want to grow in a serum, you can use an animal-free serum and lo and behold, they work, even though it might have a little bit of an end result of flavor that might be not the same, it still is something possible within lab-grown meat. I know I'm finishing up soon, but I want to give you some things that I've thought about. Like Avermenachai. Wait a minute. I'm going to take an animal cell, right? And Avermenachai, rak chazak levilti achol hadam ki adam hu nefesh Right, we know that you're not supposed to take, we learned this from Parshat Noah, right? You can't consume a live animal. So if I'm taking, I'm going to scrape off an animal cell from an animal that's still alive, and I'm taking that cell and I'm growing it, that's not a shechted animal. That's not Averman, isn't that Averman Achai? Isn't that utilizing? a live animal. And I'll tell you something else. You know, non-Jews are also not allowed to consume this. It's not only for, for you know, uh, for Jews, it's non-Jews as well. So this is a problem. So there's a, there, and, and there's a lot that some people would argue or say about this text. But I wanted to show you something from Rabbi Alexander Sender Shore um, from 1733 in Lvov. And he said that Jews are allowed to eat pieces taken from the animal immediately after shechita is performed, when they slaughter the animal, even while the animal is still moving, mafar case, the blood still being removed. It's hard to do compared to regular meat because it was taken while to some extent alive. Shechita kills the animal, even if it's still convalescing, so you could take it there. So what happens if I take these cells while the animal is still just in the process of shrita? And that is something that's suggested, that perhaps Avermenachai might be a little bit of a concern. Not again for only just um, a Jew, but for a non-Jew. Um, and then we talk about the concept of Marat Ayan, perhaps, and what does it look like? Um, is are people going to get the wrong idea? Um, and that's something that you can think about the process and how we would undergo to do it in such a way that people are aware of what we're doing, that we're doing it really in accordance with halacha, 
um, but also in accordance with the proper ethics um, that the animal doesn't suffer, that we're doing it in a way um, that is mindful. And finally, I want to talk about our responsibility to creations and God's world. And why do I put this in here? Um, you know, Hashem takes Adam and he walks him through Gan Eden, right? And tells us to watch over it. And I could give this, this closing in any one of my Uri Litzedek lectures that I've given, right? Because that's really one of the things that we care so deeply about. We look at God's world and we need to watch over it, not harm it. And there's a beautiful Midrash from Kohelet Rabbah where God takes Adam by the hand and he says, he shows him, look at all my beautiful, you know, creations. You know, I created, make sure that you're not mekalkel. Shalot Don't corrupt my world. Don't destroy my world. kilkalta. If you corrupt it, there's no one to repair it. Right now, we see that the way in which massive, massive meat production is happening, it, it's beyond what we probably thought that would ever possibly be. And it really can't be sustained. And it really is our obligation to look at God's world with a, with a careful eye and think about what we can do to keep God's world protected. You know, we have these incredible technological advancements. And we can think about also people in this world that need looking after, people who don't have food, who could benefit. So while I've suggested, and I know I have suggested that lab-grown meat, if it's pig, I mean, that would give people a lot more that I feel a little bit uncomfortable with it from a kashrut standard. I don't think that it would be problematic from a not if people don't keep kosher. So certainly that would be an opportunity for those people who do eat pig. But I still feel we have a responsibility to try to grow it and enable others to have it. And the meat that is kosher, we have to be mindful about how we do it in a way that is kosher. I do feel that it still is when people ask, is it parv? There are those opinions who say that it is parv. There are those opinions that say it doesn't even matter if it's big or not, you can eat it. I'm of the opinion that it actually is meat still because of that adult stem cell um, um, locus and genesis. However, it's still something that can and should be industrialized and utilized to not only help people, the hunger in the world, but help with the gas emissions in the world and help with our rainforests, for our environment, for our cost effectiveness. And of course, as we say before, to feed our hungry and to help our world sustain. So thank you so much. And I'm willing to open up for any questions that you might have. Thank you, friends. Feel free to type in the chat or go ahead and I just made sure that everybody can unmute yourself. So feel free to unmute yourself and ask questions away. Incredible presentation, Rabbi Dina. Rabbi Dina, this was outstanding. Oh, I see uh, any questions. Can I ask, this was amazing. I'm I'm not sure I understood how we resolve the Aver Minachai. Yeah, so the Aver Minachai, the way that one can resolve it, I would suggest is that during the process from the from the rov that I quoted from 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 the 1700 1733 
um, who the 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 Shmola Chadasha. So he actually suggests that what you do is in the process of actually slaughtering the meat, while you're in the process of that, even before the blood gets drained um, fully, you can actually scrape off some cells. I mean, he says that it's not Avram and Achai when you're eating it then. So I'm suggesting he didn't have industrialized meat in the 1700s, but I, I would suggest that that would be a proper time to actually scrape the meat off, the cells off because you still have these active adult stem cells, you have blood cells, and there's ways in which you can actually benefit from that then. So I'm making that suggestion that that would be a time um, to take those cells to clear up any concern about Avram and Achai. And I say that not only um, from the perspective of potential pain to the animal, but also I said not only for Jewish people, um, but if that's a process that certainly Israel's involved in, Avram and Achai is something that we're concerned about um, for non-Jews, and they're not even supposed to benefit from Avram and Achai. It's different, even something like nevela meat, which let's say an animal dies naturally, or it's not um, shechted, it's not slaughtered properly. A Jew can still benefit from that, even though they can't eat it. Avram and Achai, you cannot benefit from. So I'm suggesting that that would be in the protocol. Um, it would clear up that halachic concern. Does that make sense? Does that make sense, sir? Okay. Please, please. Is that for the medium that they're in or that's the cells themselves that are regrown? Cells that are extracted. The cells themselves. Now, if you would hold, like some do, that the cells themselves are Maya, are nothing, maybe one could argue that it's not Avram and Achai. But I would argue that if it's an adult stem cell that really is giving the medium its substance, then I would argue that it actually is something. It is not maya de alma, like when it says that it's just merely water, but because it actually is something that is substantive to grow and proliferate, then I would say that that is something that we do see is significant. And then you can't discount it as um, insignificant. Although some would say that. So I just want you to know, people do disagree with me on that. <laughs> Everyone ready for your stem cell exam? I have one question. I'm curious if there, in the circles of those discussing this, if um, there are metahalachic conversations going on where people are saying, look, if you hold by opinion A, essentially what we're doing is, is, is eradicating kashrut, right? Because if we get to the point where uh, maybe there's not even an option to eat meat from an actual animal shechted and killed, and we hold that it's Maya Dalma. Therefore, we could just live a life, right? And eat all the time and eat cheeseburgers and eat, you know, baby back ribs or maybe some, some oh, you know, less exciting version of that. But um, but I'm wondering if folks are, are talking about the affirmative value of kashrut as a reason not to go down the opinion one path uh, in order to preserve the ability to distinguish between basar and chalav or between, you know, kosher and treif. Well, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think someone who's bold like Rav Sherlow, who would say you can even eat lab-grown pig, um, I think he's removing that concern because I think he's being very meticulous 
about Maya de Alma. And I would actually say he is correct if I really felt that the stem cell process worked that way. If it was merely, I'm adding a little milk to my chicken soup, and it could be something that could change the environment and help, and it works with the laws of kashrut, I would agree with him 100%. And I don't think it's actually eradicating the laws of kashrut. I think it's actually working within the lines of kashrut. I actually, but I do believe that if you look at Rav Bleich as opposed to Rav Reisman, um, Rav Bleich and Rav Ariel, as opposed to Rav Reisman, I think that's exactly what they're doing. I think I don't think they're looking at it from the adult stem cell perspective. I think what they're saying is it is a mashahu. It is something, but they're not really saying why. They're saying that it's a mixture. So if you're talking about opinion one, I think that's exactly what they're doing. And I think kudos to you for seeing that. Um, I do see, however, that it's from a scientific perspective. I don't think that you can say that it's Maya Dalma. I think, and that's my, and, and also a Davar Hamamid. I think that it's, it gets more complicated than that when you see how you actually utilize that one cell um, to, pro, to proliferate. It doesn't become insignificant. The whole beauty of Batal Bashishim, right, of something that doesn't have anything. You know, when, when you're eating a salad, there's a bug that you don't see according to the Arach HaSholchan. When you see it and it's not there, it's not significant to you, nor does it ever become significant, nor does it grow to something. I mean, gross, like if it becomes into a whole, like, eh, you know, like if it becomes something, then it's significant. I'm eating the salad, right, if I care about eating bugs, right? However, if it doesn't become anything significant, then, then that makes sense to me. I think the, the concern is what happens if that's not really what's going on scientifically. And that's the only reason I disagree with Rav Shula, but I'm very proud of what he and Rav Reisman are saying, that actually you can look to see for purposes of something that's a greater value of feeding the hungry and finding a way to really help our environment to find something like this. I just don't think I would go to the extent of saying, if I could, I would, but I wouldn't go to the extent of saying kashrut wise that I can eat pig or that I would eat it with cheese. Um, and by the way, there are those, I didn't give you everything. Um, there are those who will say that it's, that you can eat meat, but they won't go as far as saying pig, which to me doesn't work either. Either you say that you could have, it's parv and pig and yeah, or you say there's something else because to say it's still meat, then you're kind of admitting that the meat cell itself is actually doing something, that it's, that it's still flation. But yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I do believe that you are right, that um, there's a huge fear what will happen. Um, it's kind of like what the Gazero that were just to kind of take what you're saying. Now that you're saying it, I, I want to take that just one step further. What we used to do years ago um, when it said, years ago, meaning Matantara, um, the whole Gazera of Of in Chalav, right? Having chicken and milk, that whole development was a meta concern that the striations of the muscle of a chicken would, of a dark meat of chicken would look similar to the striations of a muscle of, of, of a cow, for example, or, or venison, right? And it would look so similar, people would make a mistake like that, right? Um, and so we have to safeguard that someone would think, oh, I'm just eating chicken. No, you're actually eating venison. So you have to put a gazera, a decree around that. But because we don't have that luxury of a Sanhedrin now, gazerot are not being formed. But we know the way the community is. We like to put gazerot on things, even though they're not really official gazerot. Um, But I do believe that's going on. I do believe that's going on. Um, yeah. So I'm trying not to do that. 
but I think we just have to be honest about the science. Great. And if you're if you're willing to share your slide deck, I, I think it would it would be great to review some of what you put together. Absolutely, absolutely. I'd be very happy to share that. Thanks. Any other questions? Um, so I do want to reiterate, um, if there are no other questions, that really a lot of the work that goes on here at Uri Litzedek, um, in addition, a lot of times we think about the incredible work that's done at the border, um, the way we think about those um, who need advocacy, um, people who are impoverished, um, people who are who are really uh, cast aside. But we also talk about um, the way in which we treat God's world too. We care about the environment and we care. And so this all really factors in and, it, and there is a question of justice here that when we're looking at this information and we think about those who are impoverished in this world and we think about the animals and how um, they're kept and how they're really um, overly fed or given antibiotics in a very, it, it really causes a certain sorrow, a certain suffering to these animals. Um, we, we really need to really rethink our system. So um, so I appreciate that Uri Letzeta gives this, this platform um, to talk, and they actually have merged with Shamayim recently, um, which is an organization that cares deeply about the way in which we treat animals um, and how we care for our, our, our animals. I mean, just recently, of course, we always talk about what happens around Yom Kippur time when people slug their kapar out, right? They take chickens and they sling their head. And sometimes people think, what are you doing? You're moving away. No, there's, we need to care about our animals. Um, we also need to care about also our, our bodies and what we put in our bodies. Um, and, uh, and just, this is all part of how, um, as we've been reading in the last few weeks, Parshiot, you know, it's set up umishvat to make sure that the world um, that we that we traverse is one where we're we're proud to be um, moral contributors, um, have our our moral compass up, um, see what needs to be fixed, um, see what needs to be continued, and um, I think going in this direction, which potentially feeds feeds could feed many 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 people, um, is something that uh, we should. Um, consider strongly. And again, thanks to Shmuley for starting this organization that I believe is really a, a forerunner for these type of, um, of thought processes. And so I just wanted to conclude with that. Thank you so much, Rabbi Dina. Um, super, super great class today. Thank you so much. I just wanted to make sure like with, with your point on our work with immigration, a judge has uh, literally just blocked Title 42 that has halted so many migrant families from coming into the United States. So this is a huge win for migrant families and Uri Litzedek is gonna be there to ensure that these migrant families are connected with their family members, to ensure that they are greeted with love, to ensure that they're greeted with a warm heart. So Uri Litzedek is gonna be doing the work on the border and you can be a part of that as well. If you're interested in that, make sure to give us an email at info at and you can be a part of that support. Friends, we have one upcoming event with our friends from Shemaim. That's November 17th with Rabbi Arie Bernstein. And then following up, we have Rabbi Abiba Richman on uh, November 21st. That's going to be on 2 p.m. And then Rabbi Arie is going to be at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Again, all of those are Eastern time. 
Another huge and warm thank you to Rabbi Dina, personal hero of us here at Ariel Litzedek, somebody that we are so humbly glad to have an amazing leadership from. Everybody have an amazing day. Have a great uh, start of your week, wherever you are. We hope that you can continue to learn and advocate with all of us. Take care. Thank you. Thank you.